0: So here's a quote from the Bible Echo. It says, The Lord would have all who are in His service to be learners. The tillers of the soil, the mechanics, the men who have learned their trades are still to be learning better methods, expanding, enlarging their ideas. Those who do, who do not think they can learn anything are the ones who can be a blessing in the inner. Okay. What's that supposed to say? Those who do not think they can learn anything learn an awesome are not the ones who can be a blessing in the enterprises in which they are engaged. Those who are willing to learn are wanted. God is continually <coughs> leading and instructing. Right, did you guys catch that? all yeah. okay. Basically, God wants us to be ever learning. Right? We haven't arrived. That's why we still have these conferences and we're going to have more. So knowledge is power. Um, it helps a lot to minimize labor because there's always new tools and new techniques. Um, I mean, you know, just this gritter right here, right? It's new technology, yet at the same time, it's just a wheel, right? And it can save you so much time. It also helps um, when you're learning, you can see future trends. Like I think, you know, online sales is a future trend. And if you can get on that wagon before everyone else, it's going to help a lot. You know, people, and within online sales, um, you know, simple things like when you go to Amazon, it remembers your name, has all your card, you can just get on there and do that. You can do the same thing with your customers, right? So if they get on your online store, people are used to doing these things now, so if you offer that, you're ahead of everybody else. Um, It enables you to specialize, Uh, It saves time and money. It can increase profitability. Uh, There's great resources. And it can be used as a witness. So these are some different training things that we've been involved with. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of AdAgra, but it's a great conference. Some of the training uh, that we have done or recommend, I would recommend or say that the best Learn, training is an internship or apprenticeship. There's nothing like hands-on. You know, for some reason we have in this day and age people that think they can look at a video of how to weld and then all of a sudden they know how to weld, right? You can't weld unless you actually weld. And, or build a go-kart or any of these things, right? You have to actually get in there and do it. And internships are great. Um, if you're going to do an internship, I would recommend doing one with a successful farm. Right? If you do one with somebody who's not successful, and successful can mean lots of different things, right? but if you're interning on a farm and their weeds are this tall and you're having to dig through to find the squash and on and on, you're probably not going to be learning the things that you want to learn. You might be learning the things you don't want to do, but that's not always helpful. Um, so I've done a one day intensive with John Martin, and you know that was well worth it we were you know we, we had to drive fifteen hours to go to this class. We were there for eight hours and we turned around and drove back. but it was worth the time. I also did a one day small farm intensive with Ben Hartman, who does the Lean Farm, which is this book, which I highly recommend and this class was great because um it was in Lincoln, Nebraska, and they were there for a, he was there for, I think it was an Acres USA conference. And the next day he had a class, and I think he had like, I don't know, two or 300 people signed up for it. And the day before, one of the local groups asked him to come by, so he came, and it was like $30, and you got a free book, and there was like 20 of us there. So we just gotta like ask all kinds of questions and pick his brain, and, it's good picking people's brains, so I'd recommend you know if you can find small classes like this, they're definitely worth it. The Sink online market farm course with Connor Crickmore has been really good. Um, you know we did it the first class, and I think it was $1,200, which is a lot. Um, now I think they're $2,000, but it's an online class, and you know. Tons of information. I mean, there's like hundreds of hours of resources. And some of them you use, some of them you don't. You know, Obviously, there's things that we don't agree with him. But as far as how he marks out his lettuce, right, we can learn those things and apply them. So that's been a really good course. Um, and you can also, a lot of these courses now, you can ask them questions. So you can get on there and ask the person who's doing the course questions, and they'll answer it. So it's a good resource. There's also the online lettuce masterclass that we have, which is Ray Tyler of Rose Creek Farm. And that's been really good, and he focuses on mainly lettuce. So how to have successful lettuce planting all year long, through successions, through all these things. Um, We also have an efficient harvest, wash, and pack storage course with Michael Kilpatrick of Small Farm University. And he has a lot of courses. and that's been good. And then we also have done another class, which is um, Precision Egg Plant Nutrition Management with John Kemp. Uh, and that's at regen.eggacademy. Regen. And I don't know, how many guys have heard of John Kemp? Just yesterday. So I highly recommend listening to him. He's a wealth of information. And he's probably the uh, most clear, concise, easiest person to listen to on plant nutrition, plant health, all these things. And, um, so we also listen to a lot of podcasts. We listen to the Thriving Farmer podcast with Michael Kilpatrick, another one with John Kemp. And there's many others. And for the most part, they're really good. Um, you learn a lot. Sometimes they have interesting people on there. But um, for example, on the Regenerative Agriculture podcast with John Kemp, he was interviewing somebody and um, you know, seeing the future or the trends, there's a guy—I don't know where he's from, out east somewhere—but they've basically developed a tool, and it's out now. And you can actually—they're encouraging people to get it and use it. And it—it'll—you basically scan the, the vegetable, and it'll tell you the nutritional content, everything in the produce. It's still a prototype. Huh? It's still a prototype, but it's coming, right? And. You know he's saying, and who knows what will happen, but within you know a few years, two, three years, or however long that basically everyone will be able to use this on their smartphone, so you know if you know that, you know it's really time to up your game because somebody can walk down the farmers' market thing and be like, Oh, well, I'd rather buy his right, because it has twice the carrot in the carrot, right so these are kind of the, some of the things that you learn on podcasts and classes that you wouldn't learn if you're just head in the soil all the time. And there's many others. On YouTube, there's the Urban Farmer, who's Curtis Stone. There's a lot of um, webinars from John Kemp with Advancing Ecoagriculture, which is really good. Never synchasm. I mean, you could probably spend too much time watching things. And then you get analysis paralysis, and you're like, what do I do?
1: I also want to throw in that we didn't put it up there, but we've learned a lot just from going and seeing other people's operations and what we're doing. So when we come down to Adagra, we go—you know—we come from South Dakota and we come down to Florida and we go down to Texas and we go over to Oregon. And on the way, we say, "Who do we know that's a farmer?" And we can stop and we can see what they're doing and what tools they're using and and just talk and pick each other brains, and that's why this conference is so good, because you can network and get to know people, and find out what they're doing, so. This slide has nothing to do with food safety, but she's so cute, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we talked a little bit about this this morning, and there's going to be a whole <laughs> lecture on food safety, so I don't want to go into a whole lot, but just want to reiterate that everything that you do, you should be thinking about food safety because we are handling food every day. Um, so handling food safely helps to prevent foodborne illness due to pathogens. These are good agricultural practices. Um, we talked a little bit about the difference between GAP and um, the Food Safety Modernization Act. So, um, not sure what all slides I put in here. Let's see. So. The Food Safety Modernization Act, even if you're exempt, you are responsible to keep certain records and to label, label your food properly. So, we talked about keeping water, um, testing results. Um, basic hygiene should always be followed with a big exclamation point. Um, best practices should be followed regardless of requirement. And so, just a couple of references here. So, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Whatever we're doing, we need to be doing it well and upholding standards. Therefore whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets." That's the golden rule. So do unto others. If you don't want people you know, touching their body parts and then touching your food, don't do that when you're harvesting. So um, there's a food safety course on Friday. I think we um, already established that. So, um, Come to that class and I would recommend that everybody take a food safety course if you are um, growing food to sell at market.
0: One quick comment on that is, um, you know, if you, especially when people come and help, people like love to stick their hands <laughs> in their mouth with food, you know, and they're like harvesting and they're eating, right? And I don't know, but when we were at the academy, I mean people, they just do this without thinking, you know? and then. You know, you just ask them, like, you know, would you like it if I did that to your food? Mm-hmm. You know, and then they're like, well, some of them don't care, but for the most part, people don't think about this. They just think about what they're doing. I want to stick food in my mouth. I'm going to stick it in there. So you really have to watch people and encourage them.
1: And if they're working on your farm, don't be afraid to say, hey, dude, you just went to the bathroom. Did you wash your hands? You know, because it's your responsibility to make sure that they're doing that if they're a visitor. So i want to talk a little bit about this, and then I'll talk more. Okay, so the guaranteed time-tested approach to make a million dollars of farming is to invest two million dollars. Ask any farmer and he will tell you that. So um, I quoted this earlier, a farmer has to be an optimist or he wouldn't still be a farmer. Will Rogers was a really wise man that believed in, in local foods so this is the reality curve. <laughs> we found this. Um, it's a PowerPoint slow, but, er, it's a PowerPoint presentation by John Hendrickson. So this is the reality curve of starting a farm. So it starts out with naive enthusiasm, and then you get to a point, and then there's a rude awakening. And then you fall into the pit of despair. And... Um, as time passes you start to be somewhat hopeful and then you kind of get on track and finally there's a breakthrough. And so we just spent our third year market gardening in South Dakota and this year we are about right here right. to be in all honesty. Oh, are you somewhat hopeful? I'm kind of down there. I feel like this last year was one of the like worst seasons that I've had in the last 10 years of farming because of the weather, because of the stuff that happens with our partners um, I mean, it was just, it was crazy. We lost labor, so we were working hard, and we didn't see a lot of growth. And so it was really frustrating, but we know where we're heading, right? And we, ha- we keep that in sight, so.
0: Okay. I think we're higher up, but I'm the eternal optimist, so.
1: He has enough optimism for us both.
0: Yeah. And uh, I was talking to somebody at lunch, and we were talking about this, and they had a similar, or they're having a similar experience. And so one thing I think that's important to remember, and it might seem like common sense, but I don't think we do it, is um, like for us starting a farm, we automatically like put all the money back into the farm because the farm has to grow and we need things. But the reality is if you don't pay yourself, then you have to figure out how to buy clothes, and you have to figure out how to buy shoes and everything else, right? So pay yourself and and put money into the farm, but don't put everything into the farm, or it gets it gets discouraging because you're doing all this work and you're not getting a lot back for it. So so there are a lot of variables that you have to weigh in in the financials, okay? That. Um, they have a major impact on the bottom line before you even start making money. So things like location, marital, family status, daycare. You know, So these are all questions that you have to consider, right? And you know, if you're going to send your kids to daycare, if you're going to send them to school, if you're going to have a homeschool, if you're going to have outside work, if, if your spouse is going to be working, if you're going to have a tractor, if you're not going to have a tractor, what scale? Are you going to use animal soil inputs, right? So if you don't use any animal fertilizers, it takes you a different direction, right? And if you're going to use petro- petroleum products, you know, we've, John Martin, I was at his class and you know, he said, I've had lots of interns that come to my class and a lot of them want to save the world. And they say, you know, well, I'm not going to use any petroleum products, you know? Can you imagine farming without any petroleum products? Yeah, there's no greenhouse plastic, there's no drip tape, there's no garden hose, there's no, right? Pretty soon, what are you gonna do, right? So he recommended, you know, why don't you just start farming, get good at it, and then slowly start figuring out how to back off these things, right? So you really have to be careful with the walls that you put up. Um, I put dress reform on there, and I can't remember exactly why that was on there. Because yeah, I'll come back to it. But there's a reason. Anyway. Uh, employees. Um, you know, so like for example, we have four kids on our on our property. And you know, so for us, we're out in a rural area. We don't have we're not close to a big city, and for people to come out and work, it's harder to find people. And so there's a good chance the people that we have had working there have lived on property, and they've been friends, right? But we have to choose if our main focus at this point in our life is for the raising and training of our children, are we going to allow people to come in and work on farm? And who are those people going to be, right? Um, The last thing we want to do is allow somebody to come in and influence our kids, yes. right? For them to swear, for them to listen to music. To, I mean, it goes from bad to worse, right? We, I know somebody that they were molested by a farmhand on their farm, right? They lived out in the country, right? A lot of things right, but these are things that you have to consider. So if you do have employees or if you don't have employees, that's going to affect, have a major impact on how you set up your farm. Um, you know, if you're going to live on site or off site, if you're going to have debt or no debt, if you're going to have employee housing, water source, if you're going to be a perfectionist, or if you are a perfectionist, you need to realize this and try and work on it, because, you know, it, it can be challenging. And if you are, you just, you know, the things that you can put string, you can do all these things, but you need to try and figure out ways to minimize your... Uh, yeah. So quality versus volume. Um, you know, are you just going to be the guy that tries to grow 1,000 pounds of carrots and sell them for $2 a pound or 500 pounds and sell them for, you know? And there's a lot of guys that just do quality or volume and they're not as concerned about the quality. Things like, um, are you going to use hybrid or open pollinated? You know, sometimes if you say, I'm only going to use open pollinated, you know? that can limit what you can do. Or hybrid, vice versa. Um, is it going to be a ministry, or is it going to be strictly business? Or is it going to be strictly ministry? You know, I know people that want to do it strictly ministry and give their food away. Well, that works for some people, and other people it doesn't. So are you going to try and have a high crop diversity, or are you going to specialize? And I think this one is probably the one that kills us all, right? Because we want to grow what we like to grow, so we grow a whole bunch. And you know, I think if, if I say I'm in construction and I want to um, be a jack of all trades and I want to roof and do the foundation and frame and do electrical and plumbing and on and on and on, right? Is that looked upon as a, a good thing or a bad thing generally? Bad thing. Bad thing, right? But if I say, I want to farm and I want to grow carrots and beets and salad, is that looked on as a good thing or a bad thing, generally? Yeah. Kind of a bad thing, right? Yeah. They say, well, you don't have enough diversity. And where are the bees? And all these things are going to live and thrive. and So we kind of get stuck going down this road of we've got to grow this huge diversity. And then we just wear ourselves out. So I think you've got to really be careful about that. And, um, I'm going to figure out where dress reform... It's <laughs> got to be... Oh, anyway... Oh, yeah, okay, there it is. So, employees, dress reform can be a big thing. And, and you also... I just threw it in there because we had an intern that was reading, and he got really excited about dress reform. And he read that, um, you know, your arms should be covered and whatnot. And all he had was, like, sweatshirts. So he was out there, it was 100 degrees. He's wearing sweatshirts. you know. He's just like, kill himself, or what are you doing? But anyway, I just thought, sometimes there's lots of things that can affect okay, what we're doing. And I think that most people don't go into farming for the money. Right? You think that's right? You think, OK, how many people go into farming for the money? He, he is right there, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think especially in this group, in this room, we're, we're going into it for a different reason than the world, right? I think um, I think a lot of people, I think you can go into farming for the money. And I think there are people that make a lot of money farming, but that's not why we do it. I think a lot of worldly people do it to save the world or to get out of the city. There's lots of different reasons, right? And we can have some of the same reasons. And having do it for the same reasons, but also because we feel impressed to move to the country, to till the soil, to learn through nature, to raise children. Um, These are the reasons that we do it. So this is a quote by John Hendrickson. And John Hendrickson, um, I believe, is the guy that brought the paper pot to the US. He was out traveling around in Japan, and he saw the paper pot, and he imported it. And he's the original guy, so I kind of try and support him. There's there's lots of people that are selling now, but we still buy our stuff from him. Um, So he says, most farm businesses are unique in that they involve homes and families. Work, the workplace, and financial realities on the farm intertwine with relationships, running the household, and the financial realities of the family. It is not just about cold, hard numbers. It's about quality of life, issues, and goals. I highly recommend that you think carefully and talk openly about your values, your goals, and set priorities and boundaries." Right, so it's about all these things that we've been talking about, um, not just about money. So this, you know, obviously this is our our purpose in our life right now. You know, if, if we were older and our kids were gone, that's a long time away, but You know, it might be different. We might be going out and helping other people get established, or who knows what. But right now, we have these kids um, to train up as missionaries. So that's our plan. Uh, So you want to research your markets and determine what your focus will be. Make a plan and set realistic goals for income. Um, you want to do this for short term, seasonal, and long term. If you don't have goals, then you really don't have a lot to measure against, right? And they say if you don't have a goal, you'll hit it every time. And um, so there's lots of different ways to measure progress along the way. Um, you know, some real time things are dollars per hour of harvest. Okay, so this one you can pretty quickly determine if it's probably going to make you money or not, right? If you're harvesting a crop of green beans and you didn't trellis it well, and it's on the ground, and you're digging through, right, and you're out there and you're thinking, and you've been at it for an hour, and you go in and you've got 10 pounds, and you're selling your green beans for $40 a pound, that'd be nice, but you're not. You're selling for f- $4 a pound, or sometimes $2 a pound, right? If you're selling for $4 a pound, you harvested $40 in an hour. And that might seem okay, but then you've got to think about all the time you spent, well, not trellising your beans. And uh, planting, cultivating, watering, and then you have to take them to market, you have to sell them. If you don't sell them, you have to bring them back, and then you've got to throw them away or whatever. So, you know, for us... We like to try and harvest at least over 100 dollars an hour, so like our green beans, you know it'll get to a point when we say, you know, we're not making any money doing this." You know, at the peak season, we can go out and we can harvest uh, 30 pounds in maybe 20 minutes, right? And we're selling our green beans for six dollars a pound. So we're generating 180 dollars every 20 minutes. And they don't take any processing. We just put them in the cooler, and then we take them to market. So there's things like that that you can do. Um, you can also do harvest wash, harvest, wash, and pack income versus labor. So you can determine how long it takes for salad mix to be harvested, washed, packed, you know the whole thing. And kind of once you figure that out, then you have something to base what you're doing currently on. right If you determine that um, it takes an hour to harvest, wash and pack, you know, let's say 100 pounds of salad mix, and you send your employee out there to do it, and four hours later he's got 20 pounds. Then you know that there's an issue, right? And either you didn't train him, or the salad mix is infested with weeds, or, 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 or right? Um, you can also look at daily market sales. So if we have a market that goes from $1,000 to $600, we can figure out what's going on. We can look at weekly sales reports, et cetera. And then annually, you can look back at dollars per square foot or lineal lineal foot and income based on revenue stream. So basically that's saying, you know, I have a goal of making $5 a square foot in my growing bed per year, right? And then you do have to track then how much you're pulling out of that bed, how much you actually sold. But then you can go back and say, you know, consistently I'm making $2 a square foot in this bed and I'm growing watermelon. Maybe I shouldn't grow a watermelon. You know, salad mix. So we had one bed this year, basil, that we were making $16 a square foot. And, you know, that's pretty good, right? So in, in one bed, you know, we generated, uh, I think, $4,000 in 130 inch by 100 foot bed. So, you know, it's pretty easy when you get to the end of the year You don't have to be a rocket science to say, you know, I made sixteen dollars a square foot on this one, I made fifty cents a square foot on this one, you know? I want to have time with my family, these different things, what should I do more of? Right? And most people aren't gonna choose the fifty cent a square foot one. Uh Uh-huh. Somebody (laughs) marketing here. Um Every farm needs to spend time upfront tracking and evaluating their individual crops to determine profitability, okay? So this includes labor, amount of square foot used, yields, days to maturity. So basically what this is saying is like, I think for me, the example might be, you know, when you first come to the church, you spend a lot of time studying the Sabbath, right? And you want to make sure that it's truth or whatever whatever it is. All right, but then once you learn that, you don't have to keep going back every week and learning about the Sabbath, right? So, Basically. with arugula, yeah, you have a baseline. With arugula, you can quickly determine, you know, if it's profitable or not. And once you learn the profitable crops, you don't have to continually going back to relearn if they're profitable, but you can have the numbers to compare if you're, you know if something is going wrong or if you need to change something so but to do this you need to harvest you need to keep your harvest records you know how much you sold it for um, how much went bad how much time it took to weed you know how much time it took to transplant what time of year it was and this will change throughout the year so there's a lot of variables but for us you know we know that Arugula is way more profitable in the spring and fall because it's not hot. We can plant it. It'll grow like three or four crops with no issues. But in the middle of summer, it doesn't like it, so. um, So these were our top 10 crops this year. Salad mix was our number one. Basil was our number two. Strawberries. Heirloom tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, carrots, green beans, green onions, kale, and head lettuce. And every single one of these crops, except for maybe green onions, we probably could have doubled, tripled, quadrupled, or more. Maybe kale. And the only reason kale's on there is because we sell a lot of baby kale early in the spring and we sell it for $7 a pound, and it it goes fast. But as far as like Red Russian or some of the other kales, we don't do nearly as much. Um, Yeah, I think you can. So have you guys heard of the 80-20 principle? Okay, You can use this principle in anything. And it basically says that, 80% of your income comes from 20% of your clients. Or, you know, in this case, ours was about 70-30 this year, so 70% of our income came from 30% of our crops. Um, So I was asking my kids what that means, and they were trying to figure it out. And once they finally realized what it was, they were saying, why are we even doing, you know, the other 70% of our crops? And, um, you know, but you don't get this kind of information if you don't keep records. So for us, you know, if we want to increase our income, do we spend more time on the 70% or the 30%? 30%. On the 30%, right? Yes. And, and those have the most growth potential. You know, our salad production, we could probably quadruple with no new markets, just what we have. And, so that's where we need to focus. So the areas of greatest financial growth um, are the areas that we're not meeting demand. So, and many of these crops have long harvest windows or short days to maturity. Okay, so that our highest value crops are things like salad mix; it'll regrow multiple times. Basil, we plant it once, and generally it'll go all through the season. You know we. We'll prune it a couple times and then we just keep hacking it off. And it gets bushier and bushier and we hack it off. And there's times when, you know, if things are growing right and you're maintaining them, you know, I can go out and harvest 12 pounds of basil in 20 minutes and that's $16 a pound. And I'm not sure what that is, but you know, it's hundreds of dollars quickly. (laughs) So heirloom tomatoes, they keep regrowing once you get them. Our heirloom tomatoes, are number four, and I think you know normally they're higher, but this year we planted our tomatoes like the first week in June. We didn't get them till the end of August, and then we had killing frost beginning of October. So it's not very impressive for me to stand up here and tell you that we had our first tomatoes at the end of August, but that's the reality. That's the reality, so. Um, carrots, we've not even got close to reaching our capacity on carrots, those are definitely a thing, you pile them high and you you watch them fly, you know? Um, green beans are the same, so you can go to the next one. Um, yeah, so on the back one it said, the easiest way to make more is to do more of what makes you money. All right? I think that's pretty basic. So you can create a profit and loss. Um, can help to form a budget and set goals for the following year. So basically a profit and loss, and we're not financial people, but basically a profit and loss is just showing all your income and all your expenses and your profit, OK? So I think this is one thing that's interesting. But ideally, how often should we be looking at these statements? So I think most people look at this like at the end of the year, right? And I think you could probably double your um, profit if you looked at them twice a year, right? If you looked at in the middle of the summer and said, man, I've already spent all my money on labor, what am I gonna do? Then you can readjust. If you say, I've already spent all my money on seeds, what's going on? You know, but if we wait till the end of the year, it's too late. So this is like taking your household budget and making a budget for the year, and then not looking at it at all until the end of the year. It's not gonna work out very good for you. So it helps if you look at it monthly, that would be the best, okay? Because it'll help you correct troubles before they become a real problem. And reports are no help if you don't look at them. Don't wait until you get to the end of the season. So here's our actual profit and loss from this year. And from when? Yeah, from 2019. So, you can see we made, our net income was 1435 that might be a stretch. I think she cooked the books, but. Um, huh? Yeah, so, you know, we have some big expenses on here, and we have our land expense, we have property taxes, we have some of these kinds of things. Um, all these numbers are down from where they should be. And um, you can also see we have on here, and I don't think we talked about it, so I'll mention it here. You know, we started doing some baked goods this year because early on in the market, the weather was so cold, we wanted other things to put on the, the farm table. So we started baking bread, which was a challenge because we didn't have an oven. You know, we started, we started off doing one loaf at a time. Doing artisan bread. And so this isn't going to work. So then we increased it to, I don't know what it was, but four. And then we got a new double oven, convection double oven, so then we could do more. You know, then pretty soon, now we can do more, but it takes too long mixing it. So then we had to, we got a mixer, which the Lord provided. But, you know, you can pretty quickly not make any money on certain things.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, people talk about adding, you know, value-added products and stuff and having a variety of farmer's market, and I would recommend that you don't do a whole lot of value-added products while you're setting up your farm just because you're already starting one business. It's like starting a second business or a third business. It all takes capital investment, so I would just say wait until you get good at what you're doing and then add to it. Um, Another thing, I already changed the slide, but we pay tithe on everything, all of the gross that our farm brings in. And just that has been a huge blessing to us to be consistent about paying tithe and not be finicky about like, well, do we pay tithe on what we take out of the business or do we pay tithe on our, on our net or we just pay tithe on gross, everything. And the Lord the Lord blesses. That's all I'm going to say about that.
0: So um, another thing we did was we started selling organic fruit. And the main reason we did this was because we grew up in Washington, and we had plenty of access to organic fruit. But in South Dakota, there's nothing, right? You have to go to Denver, or you have to go far, far away. So we found a guy out there that was excited to work with us, and we started importing fruit. And when I say importing fruit, we Got in our car, our van, and drove out there, and we'd pick up 3,000 pounds at a time, and drive back. And the first time we did it, um, I had a family reunion, and it was totally last minute, and we just went out there. And but it's like a three-day adventure to go out there and come back. And we did that three times this year. And I don't, we didn't make nearly as much. I think at the end of it, we probably made 2,000 thousand three thousand dollars we probably ate three thousand dollars too but um, you know but that it took a lot of work establishing new markets um, the markets are there though because nobody's bringing organic fruit in and um, finding people that are willing to sell you the food can be very challenging for organic stuff but we found some big uh, farms that we can get really 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 good pricing on organic fruit and At the end of the season, our last time, we also found a trucking company that leaves from the area and comes to us every single week, three times a week. And they can bring it to us for the same price that we were paying for fuel. So that's drastically gonna change how we do things next year. So now we can spend those three days selling instead of driving. But if you don't put the work into doing those things, then it doesn't happen. Um, But you know, there's some things you can get for you know, $0.50 and sell them for $3 a pound. So there can be a pretty good markup. And we're selling them now to the co-ops, to restaurants. We have some restaurants that'll take, you know, they do uh, bus tours, and they'll buy two or three cases, sometimes a day, you know, so. But it is establishing a whole new market. Um, So another thing on financials is there's a QuickBooks course for farmers. On Thursday afternoon and um, financial software is worth the investment. Consider hiring a bookkeeper uh, at least for a couple of years to keep you on track and I think I've heard farmers say and the more I think about it it probably makes sense but I think a bookkeeper can be one of your most valuable tools because if you don't have access to your numbers on a regular basis you don't know where you're going. Um, Record-keeping is one of the most challenging aspects of farming, and honestly I have not mastered this one. I've made, I've done lots of different things. You know, I've made calendars for the whole year and put in when I had to prep a bed and I had to do this and that and, you know, it took me more time doing it than actually, you know, you get off one day and now what? Um, It takes consistency and some time investment but it's one of the greatest tools in success. So with record keeping, you, know, you have to be picky and choosy. When we first started out, we would write down everything that we were seeding, when we were seeding it, where it was being seeded, who seeded it, right, and on and on. But then if you don't write down when you planted it and when you harvested it, all the other information doesn't do you any good. So you need to be picky about what you're taking records of and choose the things that are actually going to be benefit to you and do it in a format that you can quickly look at it. Uh, you want to create standard operating procedures or checklists for common tasks. So you know, a simple one can be, you know, at the end of the day, you have a, a checklist for all your tools. You know, so they're all put back. And it doesn't take any time. You know, so if you're going down and you see, oh, the, whatever, the gritter, where is that? Oh, it's on the other side of the farm, right? You go grab that. But if you don't go grab it, and three days later, you go to grab it, it's not there. And you're like, where did I put that thing? You know, so then you're spending hours, maybe you know, hours, but, you know, you go off to find it. And then you're like, oh, that needs done. And you get distracted. And hours later, you're like, oh, yeah, I went to get the gritter. So... Simple things. They can um, maintain consistency to where when anyone, and it's worse, right? If my wife goes out there to use the gridder and I put it somewhere else and I'm gone somewhere else, it doesn't work. Um, so it definitely increases efficiency. It helps ensure that things don't fall through the cracks. I think a great example of this is, I think everyone's probably that goes to farmer's market has at one point either forgot the scale or the cash box. and. If you have a checklist, a quick checklist, for the you know scale, these basic things, you don't forget it. Um, utilize electronic records if possible. And Pharma OS is a new open source system that's being worked on, you can check out. Michael Kilpatrick and some other people are working on it. So here's um, an idea of a task ticket or a checklist, is this by, I'm not sure who this is. This might be Michael Kilpatrick, but so this is just an idea, right? So when you have your washing shed, you want to clean the sanitized wash station, go through return, returning produce and sort on oh, on, right? Um, here's a task ticket from NeverSync. So, you know, You can assign it to somebody, you can say how long it's going to take, what section, what row, what bed, and this is important if you have other workers, you know, and you say go out to the whatever, back 40 field and plant here, and they go somewhere else and plant something else, and it creates a huge mess. So with this one, you know, you can say what section, what row, what bed, and if they have any questions, they can call you and you can make it completely clear. So, you know, you can put as much information as you want, or as little, but I think these are really helpful. So, in God's plan for Israel, every family had a home in the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and the incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. And no of man has ever improved upon that plan. To the world's departure from its owning, owing, to a large degree, the poverty and wretchedness that exists today. So, you know, this is the, this is what we were given to do, and no devising of man can improve upon that. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to
1: more sermons, please visit www. Dot
0: audioverse.org.